Heavenly Father, you've told us that the natural man cannot understand these things because they are spiritually discerned. Father, give us eyes to see. It would be too easy to see this this morning and walk away unchanged. By your grace, through your spirit, in the power of your word, set us on fire this morning. Do not let us walk away from these words. Father, strike us to the heart. Break our resistance to hearing the voice of God. Give us the grace to see you in your word. We say it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week, Chase is on vacation enjoying sunny Florida. So as we are enjoying rainy Indiana, we're going to take a break from Acts and do a little mini-series <clears throat> that, I wanna, that I've entitled The Glories of the Cross. We've been spending a lot of time in Acts, and uh, if you know me well, you know that I, I, I look for a lot of irony in the Bible. I think that's a tool that the Bible uses often, and one of the ironies that I see in the book of Acts is we often struggle with all of what's going on there. <clears throat> There's these mighty works. People are being transformed and changed. Everyone is, is giving up their lives and doing extreme things for the gospel. And here's where I think the difficulty is for us, where the irony comes in in our lives. Even if you are a true believer who believes every word of this book is true, it is very easy to get to a place where that seems extreme. It seems unreasonable. Why is it that people are that excited about the gospel? And so as we, as we think about all of these amazing things in Acts, I wanted us to take these two weeks and focus on what is the message that Paul is preaching. We see all of these works that he's doing, and everywhere that he's going, it gives us a few of his speeches, but it basically just says he preached and it happened. And so I think it'd be good for us to take a step back and dig deep into the message of the cross. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be spending our time this morning in, in the book of Ephesians, which is, I think, a good summation of what Paul preached about the cross. And I've entitled this, The Glories of the Cross, because one, the Bible uses that kind of terminology. But I think that sums up where we strike this irony. See, if we're honest, I think usually we wouldn't describe the cross as glorious, at least not with a whole heart. We'd say it's good, that God was kind in the cross, that that is definitely a good thing for us. But when we talk about glory, we think of, we think of the Grand Canyon, or Niagara Falls, or these amazing galaxies that we can see. That has a, a gloriousness to it. And by comparison, the cross seems good, but simple. What is it about the cross that makes the people in Acts react to it as glorious? Well, I want to look together at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 this morning. And I think that gives us our answer. So read that with me if you would. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. See, this passage comes after a beautiful exposition that Brian actually read for us in our, in our call to worship this morning. 
that exposition of all the things that have been given to us in the gospel. In fact, it's a pretty common call to worship for us here at Oak Park. We read Ephesians 1 often because it's one of the most beautiful and succinct summations of the gospel in all of the Bible, that God called us, predestined us. He's given us new life in Christ by grace. But Paul immediately follows that beautiful picture of the gospel with these words in Ephesians chapter 2, 1. You were dead. What an odd way to finish an exposition of the gospel. God has done all of these wonderful things for you, and you were dead. Why would he do that? Why, after all of this beauty... Does he give such a morbid, dark prescription? I want to say this morning that I think the reason Paul goes here in chapter 2 is because in order to see the gospel as beautiful, you have to know where you came from. You will never know the greatness of God's salvation until you understand where you were. See, I have a belief this morning about the church in America that is motivating this message. I think... The tru in truth, the church is filled with unhappy people who think that they weren't that bad before they were saved. And because they think they weren't that bad, by extension, God's grace isn't all that amazing and there isn't all that much joy to be had in it. Maybe you come to church and you think, why, why do you sing like that? Why does the gospel bring you to tears? What are you all worked up about? Why do you talk that way? What's the big deal? And I fear that people who think that way and talk that way don't really know what salvation is. See, because he who has been forgiven much loves much. And if you don't love much, it might be that you don't realize how much you've been forgiven. My goal this morning is to teach each and every one of us to remind us that we have been forgiven very, very much. The truth of the matter is you have no idea how much it costs to save you. And the reason Paul puts us here is to help us understand why the cross is glorious. It shows us what we have been saved from. And what we have been saved from defines who we are. If you have a small view of your unrighteousness, you have a small view of the cross and a small view of God's love. So if you think that God does not love you this morning, we are going to look at the love of God, but first we are going to take a hard look at ourselves. Two parts of the sermon this morning. Who we were and who we are. Two big parts. Who we were and who we are. And in each of these cases, Paul is going to give us three indications about our condition. Three things about who we were, three things about who we are in Christ. Kids, if you've got your kids' bulletins this morning, you have a space for five words. I'm going to cheat because there's six in the passage. So you can just pick one and put that one at the end. But here are those three conditions in each place. So six total. Before Christ, who we were, we were dead. We were dead. We were enslaved. This one's a little harder if you're a younger kid, so you can maybe throw this one on the end. We were depraved. And who we are, we are raised, saved, and exalted, raised, saved, and exalted, each one of these being a response to our condition before we knew Christ. So let's dive in. Who we were. This is a picture of who you were before Christ. You were dead. Verse 1, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Here's the picture of sin, the picture of sin that we don't usually talk about. Oftentimes, when we talk about sin, we talk about sin as missing the mark. It's, a very, it's, it's true, but it's a very limited picture of what sin is. We think of sin as missing the mark, as though we're just a little off the target, as we're a little far from the bullseye. That's unfortunate. But Paul here has the picture of sin as a life-corrupting force. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Sin is a cancer that eats away at your spiritual life. In 1 Peter 2, he says, Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Sin is a force that eats away at your soul. 
Sin literally eats away our spiritual health. Some of you have had the terrible tragedy of having to endure watching a loved one die to a degenerative disease. It's really hard to watch as someone you care about slowly degrades because their body can no longer hold up of the attacking force of a, an organism that we cannot even begin to control. And there's nothing you can do about it, and you watch them slowly wane away. Friends, that is not just a picture of sin. That is the outward example of what is already happening in our souls. That is what sin does. That's just the evidence of it. In the Garden of Eden, God says, when you eat from the fruit, you will surely die. That's the outworking of what's already happening in our hearts. Our, our hearts are dying of a cancer that we cannot eradicate. Jeremiah describes it as an incurable, aching, bleeding, festering wound that cannot be bound. Ezekiel, just in the passage that was read this morning, sees it as a valley of dry bones that all of the flesh has been eaten off of. And lest you think this is only an Old Testament picture, this is exactly what Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 5. He says, the hour has come, I have come so that the dead will hear my voice. So what does it mean for us to be spiritually dead, not just missing the mark, not just falling short? It means we are completely incapable of spiritual action. Look at the way Paul describes this. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The walking dead. Now, I hesitate even to mention this illustration because our entertainment complex has so popularized the, the image of zombieism that it's completely emptied of its horror. It's become so funny and cool and we have, we, there's literally a show called The Walking Dead, super popular right now. But think with me if you will, let's return to the horror of this picture because that's why Paul is saying this. It's a picture of a zombie. See, the real implications are much more horrorizing than our popularized culture has made them. The idea is that of a desiccated husk of human form that should be alive, that should have love and delight, that should be able to laugh and cry and dream, but instead is merely animated by the insatiable desire to feed. That is what spiritual life is apart from God. A person who should be able to love and laugh and cry and enjoy God, but instead is an empty husk that can only follow its desires and feed. A life that is replaced by a mere walking death that only desires the fulfillment of its passions. That is what Paul says being in your sins is. Friends, it's not just missing the mark. Of course it's missing the mark. But we were the walking dead. We were those without life and love in this world, Paul will say. Paul describes this same thing in Romans chapter 8. For the mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the spirit is life and peace. The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Walking death that cannot begin to understand love and life and peace because we're in dead flesh. This was your condition apart from God first working in your heart. And without him coming to you, you never would have turned to him. You never would have seen the light of salvation. That should be very clear if only from this passage. Salvation is not of yourself. And yet the New Testament talks about this again and again and again. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of God. They're foolishness to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Dead people don't understand living people things. That's simple. 
you were dead. Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Why born again? What's the big deal, Jesus? He answers it in the next verse, because that which is born of flesh is flesh. Sound familiar? Paul picks up the same picture. That which is born of flesh is dead. You're not going to be born again because you're not even alive right now, Nicodemus. You can't begin to understand what I'm talking about. Jesus later says to his own disciples in John chapter 6, no one comes to me unless the Father calls him. Why? Because we were dead. The blind of death cannot submit to God. See, that was your predicament. You were hopeless. You were dead. No hope of ever seeing God. No reason that God should love you. No good reason that God should not scrap the human experiment, condemn us all to hell, which is what we deserve, the living death, and start over. But that's not what he did. God being rich in mercy. We're not going to go there. Not yet. There's more to this story. Not only were we dead, but we were enslaved. Let's look at verse 1 and 2 again. You were dead in trespasses and sins, which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So he says that you were not only dead, but we were following someone. Now, this is something the world absolutely does not want to hear, and I think Christians have grown a little shy of saying it. It sounds a little weird. It sounds a little out there for us to say the world is of the devil, but that's exactly what he says. You were once following the course of the world, namely, following the prince of the power of the air. The sinful world that we were once a part of is under the control of the devil. Now, here in the West, we are part of the cult of self-determination. Ain't nobody going to tell us what to do. Ain't nobody going to tell us who we are. I am my own man. I steer my own ship. I define myself. Yet the Bible is absolutely clear that assessment is bunk. You do not define your own self. You are going to serve somebody. The world is under the power of the devil. The prince and power of the air so Hebraism seems like, seems like a weird thing to say to us, but the air is just the under heaven, the, the spiritual realm that isn't heaven. You see this in Job. When, when we go to the book of Job, we don't, we're not going to turn there now. I trust you know at least a little bit of it. You see God in the high heavens above, and Satan is allowed to kind of roam wherever he wants underneath that. He's on God's leash, but he has a certain amount of dominion everywhere else that the spirits go. And this is a picture that goes throughout the rest of the Bible. In some sense, God has given Satan a certain amount of dominion in the world for this time. John 12 calls him the prince of the world. 2 Corinthians 4 calls him the god of this age. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says he's turning a false believer over to the power of the devil. There's a sense in which the devil has a certain dominion in this world. And it's something that we cannot ignore when we see things out there like abortion, make no mistake, abortion is not a mistake. Abortion is not unfortunate. Abortion is a scheme of the devil. We have to call it what it is. Lying in world leaders, using power to subject people, that, that's not... That's not unfortunate. It's not about lack of education. It's a scheme of the devil. Children dying in poverty and starvation. It's not, it's not a sad occurrence. It's an assault of the devil. This is the world we live in, and as, as highfalutin materialistic Westerners, I think we sometimes shy away from calling a duck a duck. Guess what? There's big bad things that go bump in the night. And the Bible tells us who they are. The world is under the power of the devil. But lest we ever get cocky, lest we ever think it's us versus them, 
Lest we ever say, see, we're God's holy army, and we'll put a stake in the ground. And look at those terrible people out there that are slaves of the devil. Paul says, you were. You were. Sometimes I think we picture ourselves before salvation as these helpless, innocent little babes that God rescues from a horrible, bad world. We're just, we're in this trap, and oh, we're so pure, but no. God saved us from the opposing army. The gates of hell won't prevail against the church, and we were marching with the gates of hell. We were of the devil. We were following that world. We were influenced by the devil himself. See, some of, the, some of you probably rail against this in your minds. That's not what the world is like. The world's a pretty good place. There's some great people out there. It's not under the power of the devil. I want to remind you of two very important things. First, if you rail against this idea, you're not going to like what I'm about to say. But I would encourage you to be very careful. See, Paul says the reason that people don't believe this is not because they're smart, but because they're blinded by sin and that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness because of their pride and because their deeds are evil. So if you think your deeds and the deeds of the world are pretty good, there's a very good chance that you don't really know what good is yet. And you may think you know God, but you've made up a God that isn't like the God in here because this book disagrees with you. So I would encourage you, Consider humility. Consider these words, not mine. Do you rail against this? Because it strikes you. Second, this is just how Jesus talked about the world. He uses this picture. It's not Paul's original idea to talk about sons of disobedience. He's picking up this idea from Jesus. When Jesus talks with the Pharisees, he calls them sons of disobedience. You don't have to turn there, but... He's having a conversation with the Pharisees, and they're arguing about whose son he is. Little tip, don't argue with Jesus about whose son he is. He's going to win that argument. So the Pharisees say, you're the son of the devil. We're sons of Abraham. And Jesus uses this basic idea, daddies and sons. Sons act like their daddy. Jesus says, you're not like your daddy. See, Abraham had faith in me. Abraham believed in me. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You don't believe me. You're not acting like your daddy. Who do you act like? Then we'll figure out who your daddy is. He says, you lie. Who's the father of lies? You Pharisees who know the Bible well? The devil. That's who your daddy is. You're not Abraham's sons. You are sons of your father, the devil. So if you look out in the world and say it's pretty good, I would say, who is your daddy? Whose son are you? Do you lie? Who do you think is the father of lies? Do you have perfect purity of mind or do you lust? Who do you think started the lust thing? Are you unfaithful? Who do you think started rebellion and unfaithfulness? Who, whose daddy is that? Do you love perfectly, or are there people that you hate and despise? Who do you think started racism and hate? We're not so original as we think we are. Until God adopts you in Christ, you have a father. And it's not up there. The world wants to talk about God as if we are all God's children, and God is definitely our creator. He loves the world in a, in a special, unique kind of way. But until we are in Christ, it is clear who our Father is, and it is not God. You are of your Father, the devil. You see, this gives us a picture of humanity that we absolutely do not want to see. Hitler and the Dalai Lama have the same daddy. Do you realize that? The killing fields of Cambodia and the unbelief of Neil deGrasse Tyson come from the same influence. 
The same devil himself was at work in the heart of Osama bin Laden planning to kill 5,000 Americans as was in the work in the heart of Jamin Eben until the day that God saved me. That's what we were. We were the devil's lackeys. He says the spirit that was at work in the sons of disobedience. The devil was at work in us. We have no idea just what it was that God looked down on and placed his love upon to save us. You think you're pretty good now? You have no idea what God's love looked like before you were saved. We were dead. We were enslaved. And in verse 3, we were depraved. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were in our sins, living out the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The picture of that is that of an addict. Someone who has been given over to an insatiable passion, a drive for that next fix. It's tragic when we see somebody like this. I had the opportunity to uh, work with police back in Rapid City before I moved down here, do ride-alongs. You know that like for police officers, 70 to 80 percent of the people they see are repeat offenders caught in some trap of addiction. And it's, it's tragic, it's dehumanizing when you see these people made in the image of God who like you and me should no be normal, should be able to hold down a job and have a life and have friends, but all of that is stripped away because they just need one more fix. And it takes over everything in them until they're willing to do ridiculous, degrading things. I remember one night we went out and picked up a man who, who had formerly had a good job. He like worked for an insurance company or something. Had gotten into drugs and alcohol and was so poor that he couldn't afford drugs anymore. So he was spraying spray paint up his nose just to get one little more high. You see a man curled up. He'd broken into a broken into kind of a porch of a house to sleep, to be out of the rain, curled up with a paint can stuffed to his face just for one little more high. Friends, that is the picture of the soul in sin. Driven by the passions of the flesh. Someone who has lost the ability to think or decide because they need one more drink, one more draw, one more fix, just one more feeling, and I'll be good. That is exactly how the Bible decides the life, talks about the life lived in sin. One who sins is a slave to sin. Paul says in Romans, God has given us over to dishonorable passions. We are passion addicts, pleasure junkies. See, this is exactly what our world promotes today. Every passion is to be validated. If you want something, freedom is to not deny yourself. Don't, don't bring in your thoughts. Don't bring in your will. Your identity is to give in to this. If you want sex, that's fine. Don't resist. Don't think about what could happen. Don't, don't use your mind to take control. Just live your life. Give in. If you, if you want comfort, don't discipline yourself. Don't work hard. Don't resist that. You deserve it. Just give in. Your passions define you. See, we've taken this completely to its logical conclusion. The whole gender identity debate right now is just further down this same rope. If you feel like you're a different gender, 
Don't, don't fight that with your will. Don't, don't think differently. Don't question your feelings. They define you. Just give in. It'll feel better. We're told that if we just follow our passions one more step, we'll find out who we really are. And we end up enslaved to the very passions that we validate over and over and over again. Is that really freedom? Is chasing your thirst really self-identification or is it just an addiction? Dehumanizing as you give yourself to every single emotion that takes you over, controlled by your passions. Friends, that is what we were. Whether those passions were base and ugly like drugs and illicit sex, or those ones that we've ennobled in the West like self-determination and comfort and money, the picture is just as ugly. We're dehumanized addicts who live for our thirsts wanting to get just one more fix of approval or power or sex or fame. It doesn't matter what our drug of choice was. We were chasing after the desires of the body and the mind, curled up in the corner, ruled by our thirsts. And this is exactly why in verse 3 he says we were children of wrath. Children of wrath. We belong to wrath like a parent belongs to a child. See that? We belong to wrath like a parent belongs to a child. We wrestle with the question, is it fitting for God to punish someone for that sin? Friends, look at this. Look at what the Bible says. The Bible says you are a child of wrath. Nothing is more fitting than for God to punish you. Rebellion against God's holy law has become part of our very nature. It's built into our childhood. David says in Psalm 51, Behold, I was born into iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. Because of the fall, sin has so twisted our inner makeup that we are born pre-designed for wrath. Death becomes us. And nothing would be more fitting than for God to judge us. And at the final day, if he were to pour out his wrath on all of the earth, the angels and the heavenly host would stand around and say, yes, good. Like a piece of pottery that comes out of the mold flawed, God has every right to smash us as damaged goods and throw us away to start anew. Do you see why the gospel is so offensive to our souls? Some of you are probably thinking right now, Jamin, you're telling me the entire world is deceived, depraved, and in prison. Yes. That God defines us, that he has weighed us in the scales, and he finds us completely wanting. Yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. And you may be tempted to say, well, that's prideful, that's bigoted. No. Because that's exactly where I was. It's not a claim of superiority in any sense. That's where we were. You say it's preposterous. And again, we go back to 1 Corinthians 12, 14. Without the Spirit, you do not accept the things of God. It's only preposterous unless it's true. And the only reason it can't be true is because you think you're too good. And what if you're wrong? See, the gospel is a stumbling block because in order to understand it, we must utterly deny ourselves. In the words of Dante's epic poem, abandon hope, all you who enter here. In order to embrace the gospel means that we have to abandon all hope of our own self-salvation. Our, our pride doesn't matter. Our works don't matter. And this one really gets us. Our good intentions don't matter. We can be good-intentioned all day long. It doesn't matter because apart from Christ, we are the walking dead, a slave to the devil, passion junkies looking for our next fix. So what should we do? Well, if you're here and you're bristling against this, don't resist the word of God. I think everything in this world happens for a reason, which means if this makes you angry, God brought you here this morning to make you angry. Maybe even that thought makes you angry. But Matthew 21 says this. Anyone who falls on Christ will be broken. Every person in this room who knows Christ heard this word at one point and it broke them. Anyone who falls on Christ will be broken. But anyone on whom he falls 
will be crushed. Don't resist. You're right. This is hard. This word breaks the world. It makes, it sounds like foolishness. It makes all the good workers out there look like scum. It's true. And yet, it is better to be broken on the word than to have the sun fall on us in the last day. If you're hearing this as a Christian, I think there's a very different response that we need to consider. There's a tragic misunderstanding in our day that you can be a halfway house Christian. That we have friends and loved ones who don't follow Christ, don't gather with his people, don't love his commands, don't think the word is the word of God. But because they're a church member or they're pretty good or they're fairly nice or they give a lot of money to the Mormon church, that they must be fairly close. Friends, this simply isn't true. The Bible is bright, white, and black, clear. There are two kinds of people in the world, dead and alive. We need to stop fooling ourselves. We need to face the incredible difficult truth that our friends and loved ones apart from Christ are not halfway Christians. Keeping them on a church roll won't get them any closer to heaven. They are lost. And everything we just spoke about applies to them. Friends, I take no joy in saying that. I have people in my own family who I have had to wrestle through that with. But lying to ourselves and thinking that somehow clinging to a false hope will get them into heaven does us no good. And taking that first incredibly difficult step of admitting that this is true is the first step to actually sharing the gospel with them. See, because when we know that they are dead and controlled by the devil and lost in sin, we will cry for them. We will pray for them. It will give us an urgency to share the gospel with them, to warn them of what's to come, and to stop stop giving them the false confidence of a halfway gospel in order that they might know what it means to know the Savior. I have every confidence that halfway Christians will get halfway to heaven. But this is not the end of the story. Praise God. Here we get to the good part. This is what we are. Because this, this isn't just to make you feel bad, it's to make you feel good about what God is. Verse 4. But God. The story changes. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. In spite of all of these reasons in the beginning of the chapter that God should not get involved. Do you realize this? God had every good reason not to get involved in our lives. He created man good. It wasn't his fault. We went astray. And he has every good reason not to dirty his hands with sinners. Grace is not expected. It's a huge mistake that we make. Grace, we presume upon it. God's a God who forgives. One atheist philosopher said, God will forgive me. That's his job. Grace is not expected. Forgiveness is not for granted. When you rightly see the universe, forgiveness is the most unexpected thing. God has every reason not to get involved in the lives of sinners. He's holy and righteous. Sin cannot stand in his presence. He ought to be running the other direction. And yet, this may be the most important reversal in the Bible. This verse should read, And God poured out his wrath. Everything in the Bible would point to this verse saying, and God punished. But instead, it says, but God being rich in mercy. With the great love with which he loved us. The question that this verse screams out in demanding is, why? Why would God love us in light of everything we just talked about? In light of what we were and what we'd done, why would God love us? Is it because of us? Because we're beautiful? Because we're lovable? Did you read the beginning of the chapter? 
Look in verse 5. God loved us even when we were dead in trespasses and sins. God did not love us because we had beautiful corpses. But he made us alive because he is rich in mercy. While we were still covered with the stench of death, following the devil and junkies to our own desires, God loved us because he is rich in mercy. Because he is full of love. The fountain of love in all of the universe overflows and places his love on dead people. The prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 17 paints this gruesome picture This is exactly what he says. Listen to this. Ezekiel 17, you don't have to turn there. As for your birth, on the day that you were born, your navel cord was not cut. You were not washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown into an open field and abhorred on the day that you were born. Do you realize what he's talking about? He says, when you were born apart from God, it was an abortion. And you were thrown into an empty field to die in your own blood. And when I passed by and saw you squirming in your own blood, I said, live. Yes, I said to you while you were lying in your own blood, live. God comes to our dead souls and says, live! And he goes on to to pledge marriage to us in the rest of the chapter and make us his bride and his queen. God sees our death and responds to life. When you were unable to respond, God reached out to you. He drove through your darkness, found you lying, squirming in your blood and said, live! Live! And in that moment, you saw the gospel is sweet. All the foolishness of the cross became wisdom. Jesus became beautiful. I'm just a good teacher. Jesus, Jesus is a good teacher. Muhammad's a good teacher. We got loads of good teachers. None of them said to me, Live. We love because he first loved us. You were made alive, able to see, able to respond, able to rejoice in the most beautiful thing there is to rejoice in. You were given life so that you might worship God and it might be your greatest joy. So God brings death to life. To imprisonment, God brings salvation. For by grace... You have been saved. What does it mean to be saved? Well, by very definition, to be saved means that you were helpless. See, it's incredibly redundant for Paul to have to say, not of your works, because the very definition of having to be saved is that means you couldn't do it. To save yourself is an oxymoron. That's just normal. You just do it. You take care of yourself. No, in order to be saved, you have to be helpless. Jesus describes this in a story in Matthew 12, that same spot where he's arguing with the Pharisees about whose daddy they are. They say, well, you're working the works of the devil. He says, you don't get it. The devil controls this world, and if you're going to beat him up, he says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first ties up the strong man, and then he can come in and plunder his house? What Jesus is saying is, I'm here to beat up the owner of the house. I came to this world to bind the prince and the power of the air. We were controlled by Satan who is at work in the hearts of the sons of disobedience. But Jesus comes into the world and ties him up and kicks him out of his own house and empties the dungeons. He throws open the doors and sets the captives free. He preaches to the spirits in prison and says, I'm big enough and bad enough to tie up the strong man. At the cross, we see the Savior coming into the house of the prince and power of the air and binding him so that he can plunder his house. You are a trophy of plunder. 
from death to life, from slaves to free, and from depravity to exaltation. This one blows my mind a little bit. Verse 6, and he raised us up with him, that being Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God doesn't just save us. He raises us up with Christ. Why? Well, the first half has to do with what we came out of. David in Psalm 40, he drew me out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, set my feet upon a rock. This picture of us, of us wallowing in sin and, and a, a clay that sticks to our clothes and our bodies that we can't get off of it, like quicksand, we can't crawl out of it. And God reaches down and lifts us up out of that. Before your life in Christ, you were in a mire dripping with the muck of sin, clinging to your soul. But God lifts you out of the bog and gives you solid ground to walk on. But Paul here ushers us into one of the most beautiful realities of the Christian life and one of the hardest to understand, union with Christ. He says, verse 5, raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places. What is he talking about? Well, go back to chapter 1, verse 19. It should be right on the facing page or a page back for you. Chapter 1, verse 19. He's talking about what God did with Christ in his ascension. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believed according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Sound familiar? From far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. This is the picture that God, in raising Christ from the dead, seated him on a throne at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, a throne which is over the powers and dominions and authorities of this world. For Christ to be seated with God means he's been given authority, that he's been made king. And this should blow your mind. You are seated with him. Your union with Christ passes to you the benefits of his victory, particularly his dominion. Why is this important? Because the war is still against principalities and powers. The same powers that once had us by the throat want us back again. And we feel it every day as we are tempted to sin. But they cannot fail because Christ has invited us in to his dominion. Now does this mean that we are little g gods who can run around binding demons and casting demons out of the toaster when it doesn't work? No. Christ is on his throne and it's still his throne. He's the one with the name above all names. He's the one with power and dominion. But I think here is a beautiful picture. You remember that old photo with JFK Jr., I'm going really back. Now, for some of you under 30, you're like, JFK, who's that? JFK Jr. under his father's desk. Really famous photo. If you don't know what it is, whip out your iPhone, Google it, you'll find it. JFK Jr. peeking out from under the president's desk in the Oval Office. I think that is a beautiful picture of what it means for us to be seated with Christ. JFK Jr. was seated with his father. Now, do you think that that means that he could get up and use the desk if he wanted to? I'm just going to sign a few laws while I'm here, Dad. I'll take care of that for you. Where's that nuclear football? I'll, I'll take care of it. No, it's not his desk. But he is seated with his father. You, how safe do you think he was there? Do you think anybody could have separated him from his father in that moment? How much authority did his father assert for his own protection as he's lying under the desk? Christian, you are seated with Christ. You are seated at your heavenly father's right hand and no one can snatch you from there. The powers and authorities are under his feet, not at his side. What does this mean for you? Well, it means you don't have to sin anymore. Isn't that a happy thought? The sins that controlled us, the passions that entangled us, we don't have to do that anymore. That's why we sing that song, you are stronger, you are stronger. Sin is broken. 
It's crushed. Christ has been exalted over every power. And sin is under his dominion. Christian, every time you are tempted, every time, never forget this. Sin is broken. It cannot have you if you will but resist. No matter how dark the shadow of temptation, the beast that is casting it is mortally wounded, crushed under the feet of your Savior. He gave us freedom. He gave us life. He raises us up and seats us with Christ on high. And why would he do this? Why would he do this for people who hated him, for people who were dead in their trespasses and sins? Beyond hope. Later on in this chapter, he says, without hope, without God in this world. Why would he do it? Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Jesus saved you so that the universe could see just how immeasurable the riches of his grace are. How much does it take to save you? How much does it take to save me? Immeasurable riches. Immeasurable riches of his grace. You see, this is what it means to glory in the cross. We were saved to shine a spotlight on the most wonderful thing in all creation. The truth that God is rich in mercy. That those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, devil-controlled sin addicts, Passion pushers can be saved by a God who loved them out of his own beneficence. We love not because we love first, but because he first loved us. And we can't stop talking about it and singing about it, even dying for it, because the perfect holy God of the universe has pledged his marriage vows to billions of dead, dirty, disgusting sin addicts like me. And when you see the depth of the pit from which you have came and the height to which you have been raised, the cross suddenly looks glorious. you start to see what you've been saved from what you've been saved to if you have eyes of faith to know God that was me all of a sudden the grandeur of the Orion Nebula the splendor of Niagara Falls or the majesty of the Grand Canyon They all pale in comparison to the depth of the riches of the mercy of God. Christian, your whole life was one to show the riches of his kindness for all eternity. And that is something worth singing about. Let's stand together.